where we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We'll look at the same verses we did last week, verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 24. And we're going to dive right in, as I said. Hopefully you're turned there or turning fast. If not, the words will be on the screen. But I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we listen to his voice in it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, reading out the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we, we stand because it is your word. That is our conviction, Lord, that every jot and tittle recorded in the scriptures is from you, and that you, as the king of the whole universe, speak with authority. So we stand because you deserve our reverence. We stand because your word is worthy of our attention. And Lord, on this subject, among just about any we could discuss, we need to be reminded that it is you who speak with authority. And so we open our ears to hear our hearts, to understand what you would say to us today by your spirit. And so we pray you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. And we know that's always for our good. And so would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your vessel today for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Pardon me while I wash the pollen. As I say, it's, it's beautiful on the flowers. I'd be better off if it would stay right there. Well, as most of you know, because you've been here um, through this series, I'm talking this morning on the subject of human sexuality. And as everyone knows, this is surely the most sensitive and inflammatory topics of this sermon series, although there are a number of topics that have the potential of being that, but certainly this one tops the list. It's the subject about which there often seems to be the most shouting and the least listening to other people. And although all of the messages in this series have a you know, kind of big picture orientation, as I've said to them. I've been, I've been interested in looking at these subjects from the standpoint of uh, what, does, what does this say to us, not so much to me. Like what, what, is, what does God reveal is good for us as 
his people or us as a society. All of them have that kind of orientation, big picture, collective sort of orientation. This one, though, especially touches everyone on a very personal level. The reason I say that is because the very first thing said about any of us was either it's a boy or it's a girl. From the very first moment that we were drawing breath, in a very, very significant sense, we were identified by our sex. Now that doesn't mean that says everything about ourselves, but it is to acknowledge uh, this is a subject that even as you talk, big picture and collectively, um, it cannot help but be a very personal one to everybody. You may remember the very first message I preached on this series, um, I said in the course of that, and that was the, the topic was about the truth, but I said there, uh, in the context of that message, I said, don't treat people like a social issue. Because people deserve to be treated like people. We need to relate to people as people and not to a social issue. This is the kind of thing I have in mind where um, there, there are, uh, again, collective societal level social issues surrounding the topic of human sexuality, but they are unavoidably personal as well. And one of the challenges for you and for me as we navigate through life and through this world is how we can parse that out and relate lovingly and effectively uh, to people as people while also discerning rightly um, all of the issues that are pertinent to society. So it's a big picture issue, but it's also an intensely personal issue for everybody. But I, I want to preface this message uh, this morning by sharing briefly how this subject touches our family in a personal way. I've kind of just alluded to this um, here and there before, and some uh, know more than others. But uh, in, in a moment, I'll say those who are watching online are going to lose audio for just a minute or two. That's intentional, and it should come back. So that happens from time to time unintentionally. This one's on purpose, um, but it should come back up shortly. But out of respect for a loved one, I'm not going to broadcast on the whole internet something that I'm uh, perfectly uh, willing and um, really think it's valuable to say to those who are present. So I'll ask the uh, AV team at this point to cut the audio. Just give me a thumbs up. But what I want to do this morning is really just to look at, I'm going to try to take a fairly simple approach to this because there's so much that could be said on the whole subject of human sexuality, right? You can't do it in a half hour. Uh, you could, there could be a whole series about it, and I'm not going to do one. But, um, but I want to do fa fairly simply and hopefully clearly, I want to look at how Genesis frames our understanding of human sexuality from a biblical point of view. As part of that, I want to show at a glance that this is how Jesus framed the issue too. The Genesis sort of view of things this is how Jesus framed it. It's how the uh, New Testament writers framed the issue. And then uh, I want to consider a little bit, uh, again, just very briefly, why it is that we live so often outside of God's good framework 
and what happens when we do. And throughout the message, I'm going to draw pretty heavily from the EPC position paper on human sexuality. I shared that as a link in the newsletter this week. Hopefully some of you had opportunity to access it. If not, I would really encourage you to. It's uh, it's a pretty thorough uh, and yet readable treatment of that. Okay, so really just two headings, if you will, uh, for this message. Number one, that God gave sex as a good gift to be enjoyed between husband and wife within the context of marriage. This is how Genesis frames the issue for us. God gave sex as a good gift to be enjoyed between husband and wife within the context of marriage. And that's what Genesis describes. God created man and woman in his image, and he uh, made a male and female. We just read it. He gave them to one another in a complementary relationship with the capacity to procreate and with the command to do so. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So you remember, I've, I've said a number of times as we've gone through this series, that, that what, what that lays out is the purpose for man, that, that, that man has created as a special uh, act of his creation. The only ones made in his image. His image bearers to represent him on the earth. To, for his glory to be uh, spread throughout the earth in a manner of speaking. And so to do that, uh, he gave them as husband and wife to one another and said, be fruitful and multiply. And so part of what that means is that their sexuality is very, very, very close, uh, closely related to, linked to their identity and purpose. It is very, very closely linked to our identity and our purpose as well if we pursue his purpose. <laughs> if our purpose is aligned with his purpose but as I said, we've looked closely at these passages in connection with uh, the messages on marriage and family in, in particular. So for those um, who have been following along in this series, you knew this was, you, you saw this coming, in other words. It's, a, it's just a, a kind of an obvious implication. But that's how Genesis frames the issue. And what I wanted to do was to show you just again, sort of at a glance, that this is the way the New Testament frames it too. I'm also going to read uh, some statements from the EPC, or I'm going to show you some statements from the EPC position paper so that you know it, it's not even just, it's, it's not just me. I, like, I'm not the only one reading this and going, yeah, here's what I think. This is really a very uh, historic Christian way of, uh, of understanding this anyway, but it's the way Jesus framed it as well. In Matthew chapter 19, I cited this um, probably two weeks ago on the passage about marriage, Jesus is asked about divorce. But in his answer, he, he, he says something that is broadly uh, illuminating when it comes to our understanding about the bigger picture. But in, in verses three through nine, it says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two 
shall become one flesh. I've highlighted that there because that's Genesis 2.24, which we just read. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, uh, to divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, I, I'm at risk of losing you entirely by bringing up that reference because it obviously uh, takes you down a whole different road and it opens up a whole different set of questions, which um, obviously I'm not planning to go into today. That's not the topic of the message. The reason I wanted to show this, though, was so that you notice the association that Jesus makes between Genesis 2.24 and what is considered a, a morally uh, right, properly aligned view of human sexuality. As the way God framed it was for man and woman to be given together in marriage and they're joined and the two become one flesh. And down at the end of the passage, he says um, that anybody who deviates from that he doesn't say it in these words because he's applying it specifically to the subject of divorce. But anybody who, who deviates from that path and, and, and engages in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is guilty of sexual immorality, and that actually provides grounds for divorce, he says there. Again, the connection I simply want you to make, and you can write down the reference and go look at it later, is that Jesus frames the issue the same way that I'm suggesting Genesis frames the issue. That is that God gave sex as a good gift to be enjoyed by husband and wife within the context of marriage. One of the reasons that's particularly relevant is you'll hear people say on the, these, you know, again, this, this whole array of subjects, it, it kind of doesn't matter which particular topic you're talking about, but many times you'll hear people say, well, Jesus never really spoke about that. Did Jesus ever say anything about dot, dot, dot? And I would say, first of all, well, it is the spirit of Jesus that inspired every jot and tittle of the New Testament. And so don't try to, don't, don't try to separate the son from the spirit in that way. Every bit of scripture is the words of Jesus, you can say. But Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh doing ministry on the earth um, did not speak about, you know, uh, homosexuality, for example, or gender identity issues, largely because those were not the big issues to address. He's speaking mostly to religious folks, right? His, his strongest rebukes are for religious people and their hypocrisies. And he didn't speak to all kinds of issues that just weren't um, the most pertinent issues of the day. Not unlike 15 years ago, nobody in America was talking about whether it's okay for, you know, um, someone who, uh, a, a young man who goes off to college to swim on the men's swim team, if, if it's acceptable for him, if he uh, decides he identifies as a woman, then to swim on the women's swim team, right? That's, that's, a, that's a debate now. 
in NCAA athletics. It wasn't 15 years ago. Nobody, nobody was talking about that. Why? Because it, it wasn't a relevant issue. I'm just saying that in a, in a manner of speaking, um, that's, that's somewhat true in Jesus' day. He didn't speak to, or at least it's not recorded, that he spoke to a whole array of issues. However, um, he did, when he spoke about sexual morality and immorality, what it revealed is he understood it in this, from, from that Genesis framework. It's God's good gift within the context of marriage. Outside of that, it's called sexual immorality. Again, you can explore that yourself, and you can test me on that if that's, you, 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 you read and determine whether I've represented that accurately or not. But Jesus framed it that way. Uh, Paul did as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's talking here about just, again, the whole issue of uh, um, sort of purity of body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. A reference from the same verse. Do you recognize it by now? We've read it enough times now. Hopefully you, you know Genesis 2.24 when you hear it. Now, again, part of what I'm, what I'm trying to help you see, and we, we keep sort of zooming in and zooming out, but, but just that the way the New Testament talks about the issue of sexual immorality, while there are all kinds of little particulars along the way that are addressed, it's addressed within the, uh, through the lenses of and sort of within the framework of what is laid out from the very beginning of what God calls good. You tracking with me? If you're with me, say amen. amen. Okay, if you're not, make note of somebody who said amen and ask them later. I want to uh, share a couple of paragraphs here from the EPC position paper on the human sexuality as we move on from this statement, just about kind of the way we've, as a denomination, summarized this more generally. It says this, human sexuality is a gift from God. Being made in the likeness of God as male and female, we reflect the loving complementarity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scriptures present a grand vision of husband and wife mirroring the intimate fellowship of the Trinity through union with a covenant partner who is both similar, human, and different, opposite gender, leading to fruitful procreation of humanity. In this profound mystery, we discover God's purposes for our sexuality and his will for how we are to express our sexuality. It is within the covenant of marriage alone that God, for his own glory, the mutual encouragement of the spouses, procreation, the strengthening of the family, and the welfare of humankind, has instructed husbands and wives to engage in regular intimate sexual love. It is this uniquely sexual relationship the married couple seeks to remember, celebrate, and model Christ's love for his church and his church's devotion to her Lord and to serve one another with godly affection. 
that says, it is God's gift and it is good. Within the context uh, for, uh, you know, th that it was given uh, and for the purposes to which it is rightly directed. But number two, I would say, the implication number two is, whenever God's good gift is oriented away from God's good purposes, it is not good. Whenever God's good gift, fill in the blank with the gift, okay? We've looked at a whole number of things in Genesis 1 and 2 that are good. Whenever God's good gift is oriented away from God's good purposes, it is not good. I've used the word uh, a couple times through this series about how God had ordered things. You could use the same word, um, ordered, or you could pick a different word. In the EPC's position paper, uh, they refer to orientation and disorientation in, in this respect, kind of where it's pointed. But whenever God's good gift is oriented away from his good purposes, it is not good. Here's what the, another paragraph from that position paper from the EPC. At the fall of humankind, recorded in Genesis 3, we began to distort and misuse the gifts of God to our own demise. But through his gracious, redemptive work in Jesus Christ, God is leading us from brokenness and rebellion to a full and beautiful restoration of our relationship with him and of our human dignity and purpose. That says a couple of things that are really important takeaways more generally, and that is, as we've said in, over the course of this series, we're looking in the beginning about what is good and that you get to chapter three and it's no longer good. And the rest, the Bible, until you get to the very end. It's all messed up by sin, right? Most of the Bible is written to and about a sinful world. And so it's just saying, well, this was God's creation in the beginning, but after the fall, we began to distort and misuse the gifts of God. It is possible to make bad use of a good gift. You understand that? It's possible to make bad use of a good gift. And this is really what happened in Genesis 3, 6. If you remember that, that first message about truth, it said, when, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. She saw that the fruit looked good. It had one of those big labels on it. You know, like you see these, these products at the store, lowers your cholesterol 30% or, you know, high in fiber or uh, whatever it is that it claims, you know. So, so she sees this fruit with this big label on it and it'll make you wise like God. Oh, that's got to be good, right? Looks good. Looks like it'll taste good. It's going to make me wise. Must be good. No, it can't be good. It can't be good. God said, don't eat that one. And so uh, it's possible to make use of something good. It wasn't good for her to eat that. It was beautiful. It may have been good for food for every other creature. 
was not good for her. It wasn't intended for her. But she saw how pleasing it was to the sight. Seemed surely it was good. Pleasure is not ultimate. Pleasure is not ultimate. It is not an ultimate good. Pleasure is good. I like it too. I like pleasure better than pain. How about you? Yeah. But it's not ultimate. Again, from the EPZ position paper, as it pertains to the issue of human sexuality, we believe that the fundamental problems with most contemporary views of sexuality are first, that the focus is limited to individual pleasure, relational intimacy, and self-fulfillment. Let me pause right there. And let you just digest that. Because that is a viewpoint of those authoring this document who said uh, that it seems, it sounds like, it appears to us that most contemporary views of sexuality are really focused on individual pleasure, relational intimacy, and uh, self-fulfillment. Again, all of those things, to a certain degree, and in their right context and limits are good things. But it goes on. Second, that, the biblical, that biblical marriage is rejected as the exclusive context for sexual intimacy. That's hardly even debatable, right? I mean, those who, uh, th- those who don't hold to a Christian view or those who even want to really still think of themselves as holding to a Christian view still want to do away with that limitation that it's designed exclusively for the context of marriage. While the scriptures teach that human sexuality is indeed a gift for our enjoyment, its primary purpose is to glorify God. Whether young or old, male or female, single or married, whether attracted to the same, the opposite, or both sexes, all humans are obligated to glorify our creator in our sexuality through faithful conformity to God's design revealed in the scriptures. Now that's a mouthful, an earful, and a brainful. Uh, that's why I point you to the reference so you can go and read yourself. But again, part, part of what that implies is the goodness of human sexuality is not defined by its pleasure. And it is pleasurable by God's design. Enjoyable. But not everything enjoyable, as I said, is good for us. Or at least not not everything enjoyable in all contexts, in all ways, at all times, and so forth, is good for us. Again, I'll draw from another New Testament reference, speaking on a different subject, actually, from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's actually a really big idea. It's bigger than we have time to digest this morning or that I have time to say much about. There's a really big idea here um, that God gives us all things richly to enjoy but then not every way that we can enjoy them is godly. 
He, he, gives us, he gives us good food. He gives us uh, money. He gives us sex. He gives us recreational pleasures. He gives us wine. It says so in Psalm 104. God gave wine to make glad the heart. Thank you, Lord. But see, you know, you know very well. Not all the time, everywhere, without limits, right? Like you understand, it's not entirely good. But he gives us all things richly to enjoy. But here he's speaking about riches that he gives richly to enjoy. And is telling, uh, uh, charge the rich, don't be haughty and arrogant, don't set their hopes on their money and so forth, but on God. And you know that throughout the Bible, there are plenty of words of caution, warning, rebuke, or even outright condemnation of the rich, right? You, you read lots of them. But it is not an outright condemnation of riches. Because prosperity is a good thing. But it's not absolutely good. And that's what he's saying here. God gives it richly to enjoy. But there are, for us, sinners in a fallen world, typically we can come up with more bad ways to use a good gift, right, than we can good ways to use it. And so it goes with money and everything on the list. And the relevance of this to the subject of human sexuality is when we decide that our desires are telling us the truth and that our desires speak with authority, we will surely be led astray by them. It is just certain. When you decide that your feelings, your desires, your impulses, that they speak the truth to you and they speak with authority, it will surely lead you astray. James chapter 1, I don't have this uh, up for the screen, but I'll kind of wrap up with this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, this is James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Um, that the New American Standard uses the word carried away. Each man is tempted when he's carried away by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But we, our desires will carry us away. They will. If you let desire be the authoritative voice on the subject of human sexuality or the subject of anything else you want to you talk about, if you let desire speak with authority, your desires will carry you away. That's what they do in a sinful world. Not because they're inherently, uh, the desires aren't inherently bad either. Your appetites for all kinds of things. But it is certain that you and I will be carried away from if that's what gets the authoritative voice. And that is one of the fundamental 
points of disagreement or departure for people in the 21st century discussion about human sexuality in America and in the Western world. It is whether God's voice really gets to speak with authority or whether it's our own desires, appetites, or inclinations. But what he gave us in the way of sex and our human sexuality is good. And there's not a, a, there's not a whole lot of explicit discussion about that in the scripture, but there, there's, there's some that just says, like, you can't escape that. It's true. It's good. I mean, Song of Solomon, uh, there's plenty of it there. Again, while it's not graphic, it is just saying that sort of marital love, the enjoyment of it is a good thing. And so uh, for the Christian, the important takeaways for us are number one, that we don't want to handle this subject as if it's a dirty thing or a shameful thing. It's not, it's good, it is good. But we also uh, don't want to sort of concede to the, uh, the terms that you know, anybody else in society would lay down for us about how it is we're to talk about or understand the subject of human sexuality. God speaks with authority. We are made in his image in order for his glory to be revealed on the earth. And we need to speak, if we're going to speak, his words. We need to operate and, and, uh, and speak from his point of view rather than the point of view of the world. Now, the real challenge in that is many, many, many times we probably need not to speak at all. There, there are many, many situations where saying nothing may be better than saying something because, because you'll be confronted um, at, at every turn with the challenge of understanding this as a social issue and also as a personal issue. And you'll have to decide along the way where, whether relationships matter more to you than arguments. Whether it's, whether it's more important to you to preserve a relationship or at least to seek to maintain and preserve a relationship than it is to win an argument. And I'll say now what I said in the first sermon in this series, that is hard. That's hard. Because it, it's just not clear sometimes uh, when a word of truth is the appropriate response or when silence is. Or when it's just an act of grace and words of love and acceptance. But here's, here's one of the things I do want to assure the Church of Jesus Christ, or more specifically, the Church of Myrtle Grove Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And one of the reasons I shared our own personal connection to the issue, it is possible to be loving without being affirming. 
It's not easy. But it is possible. And, and, and part of what that requires at the very outset, it's for us to see with clarity what does God say about what's good and then what does it look like for us to navigate our way in that direction? I'm going to end on that note. And um, again, there's so much else that could be said. So much else that you know, probably on a personal level, uh, deserves to be said. Or um, so much that we would need to respond to personally. Because none of us is innocent. And none of us is pure when it comes to this or other subjects. Well, let's close in prayer. Well, God, again, we just declare that you are good. You're light and there is no darkness in you. You are holy, spotless, and without blemish. There is none like you. And so, God, our, our prayer today is that you would help us to receive your word as true and authoritative, to align ourselves with it. That in whatever ways, Lord, that we need to confess our own sin, that we would do so, Lord, that we would take the log out of our own eye, as Jesus said, before we go around as speck detectors looking at the speck in everybody else's eye. But God, would you help us to see clearly? Would you help us to desire more fully the purity that you would have us to walk in? And Lord, would you, would you make uh, marriages a place, Lord, where we have renewed love and passion for one another, enjoying the good gift that you've given us. Lord, I pray that as we close today that your grace would cover um, perhaps words that I've spoken that aren't worth holding on to. Uh, Lord, that your grace would heal wounds that are just exposed that just make it difficult to hear discussion about this. Lord, would you just be gracious. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And would you prove that to be true again? In Jesus' name, amen.